Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We are continuing to work our way through the text. As is our custom, we take the Word of God chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It makes it both easy and difficult. It means, number one, I don't have to spend a half a week wondering what I'm going to preach the next Sunday because I just go right to the next verse. It's already decided. also makes it very difficult because you come to that next verse sometimes and you're like, ooh, I wish I could skip this one. But you can't. That's the discipline. You want to hear the whole counsel of God's word, every aspect of it. And so if you're joining us for the first time this morning, we just want you to understand we go through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so you are jumping into the middle of a story. And that story obviously began all the way back in chapter 1. Um, we find ourselves here in chapter 5, the tail end of chapter 5. We're going to pick it up this morning in verse 33, but for those of you who are visiting us for the first time, I thought it might be helpful just to kind of give you a little bit of the context. Uh, Peter and his associates have been preaching Christ, and they've even performed a miracle of healing on a lame man. There's uh, been a bit of controversy, a bit of conflict with the religious leaders of that day, namely the uh, temple compound, the uh, officials, the high priests, the Sadducees, uh, the captain of the temple guard, and a few of the uh, individuals who were charged with the responsibility of overseeing the worship of God in the temple compound. They don't like this novel, new concept, this Messiah, allegedly, that these guys are proclaiming. And um, we know from the book of Matthew and other Gospels that uh, Caiaphas and Annas, the chief priests who directly oversaw the kangaroo trial that led to the conviction of Christ and led to his subsequent execution, they know the truth of who Jesus is. They understand that on the third day, Christ rose from the grave. They understand that this whole thing, this whole preaching of Jesus could be quickly put to bed and done away with if they had but a body. I mean, you imagine Pentecost, Peter is up there preaching the name of Jesus. That sermon doesn't last long. He's up there talking about life and forgiveness in the name of Jesus. All it takes is somebody to go down to the local morgue, pull this body out, pitch it right up there on the stage in Solomon's portico where Peter is preaching, and the movement is over before it ever even begins. So as we enter into this text this morning, I want you to understand that the mindset of these men is not one of deliberation. It's not one of weighing evidence, one argument against another. They're complicit in the greatest conspiracy, the greatest cover-up in the history of all mankind throughout all time for all eternity. It is an attempt to mask the good news that there is a God in heaven who loves you and has sent his son to die for you so that we can sing as we just did a few seconds ago. Grace and mercy meet. Grace and justice meet and point to mercy's store and ask of us no more. Grace being we get what we don't deserve and justice being we get exactly what we deserve. And the Christians who have hoped in Christ can say that both are true for us because of Christ. This is the gospel that they're proclaiming. So if you're new and you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, I just want to pick it up. I want to rewind a little bit. We're focusing this morning on verse 32 to 40, 33 to 42, but I want to just rewind back to verse 27 
help you see where we are. We'll read the text as is our custom. We'll pray. We'll ask God to help us, his spirit, to illuminate the passage before us. And then we'll jump in. Verse 27. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with this teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him as, at his right hand and as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, verse 33, this is their answer. We said, you shouldn't do this. They said, yeah, we know, and yet we're still doing it. And here's what they say to each other now. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, there was another guy, Thutis, who rose up claiming to be a somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed, and they came to nothing. After that came Judas, the Galilean, who rose up in the days of the census. And he drew away some of the people after him. Well, he too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men Just leave them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, of course the customary beating was performed, And then they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Verse 41, the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted as worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And I don't know if your Bible does this or not. Mine doesn't. It should be capitalized. We're talking about the name of Christ. They counted it a blessing that they were considered worthy to dishonor, to suffer dishonor for the sake of Christ's name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just say thank you so much for your word to us this morning. For the virtue that these men displayed in the face of adversity. For the confidence that they had in you. And as we seek in a similar fashion to reach a world that was every bit as hostile and antagonistic to the message of love and forgiveness that you offer, help us to learn not only from the virtue of these men, but from their example, their character, how we are to meet the same sorts of difficulties, ultimately with the same faith that they had, not in our own ability to win or to persuade, but a confidence in your ability to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Lord, let all of our efforts 
reflect a deep and abiding trust in you and no regard for ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. He finds himself in a time of shifting political alignments. This would be his third, indeed, possibly his fourth governmental administration. He finds himself having to wrestle with the fact that he has come to the end of his illustrious political career. Indeed, the next administration may not retain his services. He isn't ready himself for retirement, but he may be compelled to go into retirement, or he may be killed. It is a time of shifting moral alignments. There are new ideas of nationalistic fervor. There are new state-sponsored religions. There are new spiritual spiritualities, and there are new forms of expression and self-discovery, but he's a bit of a traditionalist. He's always worshipped the God of his forefathers. It is, in this part of the world, a time of upheaval and perpetual warfare. He lives in the most unsteady and uncertain of times, and yet his confidence in God has never been shaken. Indeed, his God comes to him in these final years. And Daniel receives a vision of the end. He beholds unbelievable terrors. He observes not only the shifting of the sands of time, but a sweep and the spread of world empire. He understands that there are great dangers which are coming upon God's people He knows that his own people, now living in exile, still face danger and threat. And in response to all of this, Daniel's reply is, I heard it, but I didn't understand it. And then I said, oh, my Lord, what's going to be the outcome of all of these things? To which God replies, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall one day awake. Some to everlasting life, and some to everlasting shame and contempt. But those who are wise, notice this. God's statement to Daniel at the end of the book, having seen it all, having known now what the end looks like, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness shall be like the stars forever and ever. In response to the question, what's the end of all of this? What is the outcome? How's it all going to end? God's statement is let's have wisdom and wise people look like this. They shine like the stars in the sky above. And as you consider that image, understand he's talking about a black night sky blanketed by brilliant points of light. In this day and age, this is the same star. These are the same stars by which sailors set their course across the oceans by night. These are the same stars in which they are tracking and counting time and monitoring the changing of the seasons. It is these stars which provide the measurement of time. And God is saying, regardless of time, when you look up at the blackness of the night sky and the fact that there is nothing but void emptiness there, the wise will be like this. In the midst of that darkness and that blackness and that void in which there is nothing, there will still be something, a point of light shining by which others 
will be able to align themselves. And he says, those who are wise will be like that. And then he clarifies to to Daniel. He says to him, those who turn many to righteousness shall shine like the stars forever and ever. Obviously, the call is we don't need to worry about the dates or the times in which these things are going to happen. We know they are happening. We know they will happen. And yet the call remains the same. Our job, our business here at First Baptist Church, your job as a follower of Jesus Christ is to just to keep on shining. As we look at the newspapers, as we read the headlines, there's no doubt that it is getting gloriously dark outside. I say glorious, not in the sense that I rejoice in the darkness, but it makes it easier to shine. You read the headlines and the confusion. You understand that our society has no idea which way is up or which way is down or what should constitute morality, what the right way forward is. Every election cycle brings promises of happy ways and change. And ultimately, if we can vote for this politician or that politician, we will be saved and delivered. And we always accept that and we always vote for it. And of course... The next election cycle, we are left with buyer's remorse. It wasn't changed. Nothing was fixed. It's more of the same because we've lost sight of the fact that only Jesus will save us. Rather than political organization, I'm not against political involvement. Please don't understand me. We need to be about preaching the gospel. As I considered that statement to Daniel, those who are wise will shine like the stars. I recognize that the call is to be sharing the gospel, to be pointing people to Jesus, and that if we are wise, we will make that the cornerstone of our lives. And so as I was considering that, I also came to this particular text here at Acts chapter 5, and I recognize there are four virtues which are on clear display here in this text. Four virtues which we should seek to instill if we would be wise and point others to Christ. So this is how I want you to understand this. Peter and his companions are in a sticky situation. But even though it doesn't look good for them as they face this council, there are four virtues which they will not turn away from. There are four commitments that they have made and they are going to follow it through. And I encourage you this morning, as we look at these commitments one by one, that you will make these commitments in your life, that they will become bedrock convictions, that you will hold to them, and that as a result, you will experience the same wisdom that they had, and you will know the same blessing that God promises to those who embrace these. I'm not exactly a stunning example. I come before you this morning to fully acknowledge I struggle with all four of these convictions from time to time. But together, if we would look to God's word, if we would together as a church commit to looking to these four virtues and embracing them amongst all the rest that God's word has for us, we would know the blessing of the Lord in this house. Look with me. The first thing that the passage says to us in Acts chapter 5, as we come into it, says when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. Why? Because they're preaching that there's a man that has come back from the dead. It says, Gamaliel's response to that, 
they want to kill these guys. His response to that is, men of Israel, take care. He goes on to talk about a couple of guys who came to nothing, these, these startups, that, you know, these, these rabble-rousers that came up that got a mob together and did the same sort of thing, got involved in a political movement, and ultimately those political movements failed and they came to nothing. And so he's cautioning them. He's saying, basically, look, guys, don't overreact. Don't treat this as more than what it is. We've seen this before. We've had these same sorts of things happen before. These same sorts of situations have arisen. And look, they petered out. They came to nothing. It was no big deal. So let's not overreact. But then Gamaliel makes a curious comment. He says, if this thing that we're seeing with Peter and all of his associates preaching Jesus, if this thing is from God, then we won't be able to stop it. Now, what's interesting is they know Caiaphas, Annas, these guys on this council, they know this thing is from God. but they're deceived. And Gamaliel's counsel is, if this thing is from God, well, we can't stop it. But he offers them this alternative that it's just like all these other upstart movements that eventually fizzled to nothing. Now, did Peter know that this was going to be the argument that was going to save the day for him? Don't worry, Peter. Gamaliel, a Pharisee, is about to go to bat for you, and he's going to say that you're of God. And that's going to get you out of jail. (laughs) Does that even make any sense? It is true that Peter represents Jesus. It is true that these guys want to kill him because he represents Jesus. And yet it is also equally true that that argument is the argument that seems to win the day, even though that argument is the argument that started the controversy. What's going on? You'll notice his statement here, when they brought them in, if you jump back to the previous paragraph, they say, we told you not to teach in this name. In verse 29, Peter and all the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Does Peter know how the argument's about to play out? Does he know that Gamaliel is about to persuade all of his companions in the Sanhedrin to let them escape? Peter has no idea. Peter's response, he has to be answering with the full knowledge that whatever happened to Jesus, these men are capable of performing it to him and the others. And nevertheless, he speaks the truth. We preach Jesus. He's undoubtedly at least thinking that there's a possibility that he's about to get killed for it. And nevertheless, his hope is in God. Virtue number one, First Baptist Church, this must govern everything else. This must be the cornerstone of everything we do. This must define our prayer, our vision casting, our decision making. This defines how we balance resources. This defines how we steward our money. This defines how we update and renovate our facilities. This must govern everything we do because it is the birthplace of Christianity at its fountainhead, hope in God. I say that, and you're like, yeah, 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 we hope in God. Listen, hope in him. Hope in him. A number of years ago, when I was in high school uh, in Texas, we don't get snow. We get the occasional rain. And when I say occasional, you need to understand it's really occasional. Most of Texas and where I'm from is just a giant dirt pit. It's usually dry or on fire. That's common. Um, rarely do we get rain where I'm from. When we do get rain, every rancher, every kid, everybody there has a pickup truck. And so when you get just a little bit of rain, do you want to know what our most favorite pastime is to do with these 4x4 pickup trucks? It's to go mudding. 
It's to get them to slide around from one side to the other. You see, here we have snow and we have parking lots, and we can just do donuts in parking lots if we, so, or if we feel so inclined. But most of us get enough of that when we're going at speed down the Coquihalla that we have no desire to go to a parking lot and do donuts. For Texans, it's the exact opposite. You get a little bit of mud. You get a little bit of rain. You put it in a 4x4. You want to see if you can make this thing do 360s. And so it was that I recall when I was in my junior year, grade 11, a bunch of buddies, we had had a rainfall, and we decided we were going to go out, and we were going to go mudding with our pickup truck. We found a really wet bog just to the, uh, west, to the east side of town there where all the water had run off. It was a bit of a soup pit, and we thought, yeah, this will be great. And we ran through this thing a couple of times, and we were splashing mud. Mud was up on top of the pickup truck. Mud was getting everywhere. We were having fun just revving the engine and jumping back and forth across this bog in, I don't know, some farmer's field somewhere. And, of course, then the challenge comes yeah, okay, we can really race across it. I wonder which of us could still get across that bog going the slowest. See, we just took it to the next level, right? And, of course, uh, my friend was at the truck, and he wants to set the record, so he's going to try and just barely inch his way across. One guy's watching the tachometer. The other guy's looking at the speedometer to sort of gauge approximate speed because all of your wheels are spinning and the speedometer is telling you you're doing like 100 miles an hour and you're hardly moving. But uh, we're going to try and approximate our speed across this thing. Lo and behold, we got stuck. Like horribly stuck. Like no way out. And of course, this is before cell phones were widespread. This is before you could just whip out your cell phone and call a tow truck. We were stuck as could be. And we were about a 25, 30-minute walk from the nearest civilization out in the middle of a field. And, uh, of course, you try all the different things, put it in reverse, try to rock it backwards, put it back in drive. You get, get out, you're pushing. Other guys get out, they're shoveling. We're trying to move mud with our hands. We're trying to dig our way out. And, of course, you're getting me- everybody's getting messy. Everybody's getting covered in mud. We go back and forth for like 20, 30 minutes. Finally, somebody volunteers. I'm just going to go and get a phone. So he walks away to go get the phone, and of course, we're all still sitting there digging and scraping and pushing and trying, and we could not unstick this truck. It was just stuck as stuck could be. And we climb in, and we've got mud all over the cab at this point. We're covered in mud. We're tired. The truck is not moving, and we're just sitting there wondering what to do. And eventually, one of my other friends gets out of the truck to try and dig his way out. So he, he's going he's gonna to give it one more go, give, dig some more, do some more. And my buddy says to him, listen, what are you doing? It was his pickup truck. He says, you're getting mud all over the inside of my cab. He says, just stop it. Just stop it. He says, either you're waiting for the tow truck or you're not, okay? If you're not, get out and stay out. If you are, in and stay in. And I thought that was pretty sound advice because I was tired anyway. I don't want to dig. (laughs) But his point was simple. Do we really think we can fix this situation in our own strength at this point? Or do we need to have hope that there's a truck coming for us that can pull us out? 
See, so often in the Christian life, that's how we approach it. We say, yes, Jesus Christ died on the cross. He forgives me my sins. I find myself delivered from an impossible situation. I could never atone for all that I've done wrong. Jesus dies on the cross. He saves me from my sins. He pulls me out of the miry muck. He pulls me out of the filth. He cleans me, and now I stand before God, and I'm clean, and I'm washed. From that, we say, amen, hallelujah, thank you, Lord, and we turn to our Monday morning, and guess what happens? We are going to do only that which we are capable in our own strength of doing. We're going to share only in those moments in which we are most comfortable sharing. We are going to proclaim the name of Jesus only where it is safe, where we are able to control all of the variables. Because we fear finding ourselves now stuck in another situation that is beyond our control where quite possibly we might need God to pull us out of it. The church, if that's your perspective, then what we've done is we've embraced the gospel at the moment of salvation, but we've ignored it as we've turned to the immediate next task, which is the task of sanctification. As Christ saves us, so he also sanctifies us. That is, as he has redeemed our lives by that same process of trusting in him, so also we are called to walk by trusting in him. These guys know that their mission is to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Well, they've run right into the middle of a mud bog with a bunch of Pharisees and Sanhedrin who have locked them in jail. Do you think that the good thing to do here would be like, you know what, let's just calm down a little bit. We'll go out in the next morning when we have our trial and we'll apologize for rubbing their feathers the wrong way. We'll say, oh, we were misunderstood and we'll try to dig our way out of the situation so that a little later on after we've had our shower, we're all cleaned up, then we can go do it all over again. Absolutely not. We will not diminish the name of Christ. Rather, this is his mission. We will proclaim the name of Christ. Proclaiming the name of Christ got us into this jam and hoping in him saves us and hoping in him, if it is his will, it will get us out of this jam. Hope in Christ, church. Hope in him. That's the first virtue. And if you don't have that one, the next one isn't going to work. You see, when you hope in Christ then you're comfortable playing from behind. Indeed, if your desire is for God to get the glory, then you relish those situations in which, by all human estimation, there's no easy way out. It's no different than two basketball teams coming together during March Madness, and one basketball team runs up the scoreboard, and you've got something like 100 points on their side of the board, and you look over at your side of the scoreboard, and you've got like 10 or 15 points, and there's like five minutes left in the fourth quarter, and you're thinking, we're going to lose this game. Now, for you and me, and I don't play basketball worth a flip, in case you're wondering, that is actually quite a bad situation to be in if you're hoping to win. But for God, that's exactly where he likes to start. And it's true throughout all of Scripture. Abraham, called to be the father of a generation of people so numerous it outnumbers the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. He's 100 years old. He hasn't produced one child. You look at Joshua, called to lead people into the battle, into the land of Canaan. 
He comes up against this city called Jericho, walls that just tower up to the skies, and his call is to somehow bring this city to its knees with nothing but a couple of trumpets? You look at David, little shepherd boy, little four-foot nothing, and he's called to go out across the brook there and meet Goliath, a nine-foot giant, with some stones? If you've been thinking that God likes to step in and win the battle when it's all going his way, you're not really reading the same book I'm reading. I find time and again just the opposite. God likes to let things get bad, and then he likes to let them get a little more bad, and then he likes for them to get really worse, the worst that they can possibly be. So that the Lord's people have come to the end of themselves, they recognize there's no easy way out, and they begin to realize that if there will be any deliverance or any salvation, praise his name, he will do it. These guys are in jail. They bring him out. Okay, let's hear your story. You killed Jesus. We're going to obey him instead of you. Not the greatest defense if you're looking to get out of jail that day. They're playing from behind. If there will be any deliverance, God is going to perform it. And it's interesting because playing from behind, not only does God love to play from behind, and not only should you and I learn to love playing from behind, but the world really seems to lose its way when it considers that it's winning from in front. These guys have all the power. They're in total control. And the argument that's going to present, that's going to change their mind, is a totally illogical argument. Look at what he says, Gamaliel. He says, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. Don't, don't be hasty. Don't rush into anything. Let's consider carefully what we're doing here. For before these days, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who were with him, they scattered. They dispersed, and they came to nothing. After that, Judas, the Galilean, he rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away some of the people after him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and leave them alone. For if this undertaking or if this plan is of man, it will fail. Now, is this plan, is this undertaking of man? In both instances, he's, he's recognizing groups of hundreds of people. At this point in time, we have somewhere around 10,000, possibly more individuals who are joining the banner of Christ. But all of that aside, just setting aside the numerical differences between the two men that Gamaliel references versus the movement that the apostles are observing started, Jesus is the centerpiece. You see, these other guys didn't preach a Messiah. They themselves claim to be a Messiah. Peter and the apostles are preaching a Jesus that we can't see, but we know was executed. There are significant differences, and the most critical one is these men know that they killed him, and they know that they covered up what they did. Gamaliel's statement is, look, this has happened before. History has unfolded. We had these upstarts, they came to nothing. Same with these guys. They're just upstarts, they'll come to nothing. It's different what these guys are doing. But essentially, the argument that Gamaliel is making 
is let's get on the right side of history argument. Built into this sort of an argument is this idea that history is going to go the way it's supposed to go, that time is going to move the way that it always moves, and that there are certain trends that are unfolding, and as they unfold, they're going to continue to unfold, and so we need to just keep in step with the normal progression of time. Now, taken to an extreme, this sort of argument is used to justify all sorts of new moralities or new behaviors. Obviously, those types of moralities and behaviors would not have been welcomed here in the first century. But these men are looking at the situation, and essentially what Gamaliel is saying is if you hurt these men with how popular they are right now, it might undermine your political authority. Ooh, that's bad. But these men are upstarts, just like those other guys. They'll come to nothing. Yeah, that's good. We like that. Oh, and also, P.S. If this is of God, you won't be able to stop them anyway. Now, it's that last comment where if they're fully hearing Gamaliel and everything that he's saying to them, they don't conclude this interview with the apostles with a beating. You see, that's what comes next. They hear all of that. They say, cool, ar- cool argument, Gamaliel. Good, good plan. You, you're really thinking this through. We're with you. So they took his advice, verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them When Gamaliel says, this could be of God, and we could be found to be opposing God if we oppose these men, that's in one ear and right out the other. What they hear is, this stuff happens all the time. It's just a historical phenomenon. There are always these kooks and these crackpots that rise up that do these weird kooky crackpot sort of things. No need to overreact. Just leave them be. It'll fizzle out. They buy that argument. They ignore the counter-argument that it could be of God, and they conclude their day with a beating of these men. If you're Peter and the apostles, does any of that make any sense to you? No. Why didn't they just kill us? Because they have the power to do that too. It's the response to Gamaliel could just as easily have been, hey, Gamaliel, here's an idea. Why don't we just kill him? There will be some backlash for a little while, but it will eventually fade, and then we'll go on with our lives. Well, because of the caution that he offered. What if this actually is from God? So we're not going to kill him because it could be of God, but we'll just beat him instead. None of that makes any logical sense. The point that I'm trying to make, though, is that the only one that pulls that off is God. You see, the second virtue as Christians that we need to embrace, having hoped in God, we should fear not man, but we should fear God instead. Our dread should not be 
in the counsels or the thoughts of those who are in opposition to the cross, we must always serve Christ because our hope is in him. And when we run up against hostility or opposition, we ultimately should not fear that opposition because it has time and again demonstrated that it is illogically incoherent and inconsistent. And ultimately, if the Holy Spirit so chooses, he can frustrate and overturn the, de- the designs and the plans of our enemy at any time. Fear God. Don't fear man. And so they beat them. They beat them. It says, and they left the council Uh, They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The third virtue that I want to draw your attention to, the destination of stewardship is sacrifice. These are men who are taking pleasure in a beating because the beating is considered by them to be a tribute for how well they are representing Jesus Christ. Now, as we consider our bodies, especially as we're getting older, we're thinking we need to do some stretches, we need to go to the gym, we need to run, we need to make sure we're healthy, we need to make sure we're staying healthy, eating right, watching our cholesterol, all of those things. We want to take good care of our bodies so that our bodies will last a long time so that we'll enjoy a long, healthy life. And that is a wonderful thing to do. But they define for us here, ultimately, what life is all about. Life is not about us living as long as we can live. Our bodies are our greatest gift to us. We cannot live life without our bodies, but they demonstrate that even the most precious thing we have apart from our souls, namely our body, it is to be stewarded not to our own glory or our own comfort. It is to be stewarded to the glory of God and making Jesus' name famous. When they get beaten, they don't walk away saying, oh man, we got beaten. We got to come up with some better way to present our gospel so we don't get beaten. Surely that's a consideration. Surely that's a strategic sort of tactical thing you need to consider. Nobody wants to welcome a beating just for being a jerk. Nevertheless, we're called to present the name of Christ. And if it brings physical repercussions, we consider that a sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. Not a mistake. Not something to be avoided at all costs, but indeed a tribute. Notice what the text says. They're not like, well, we got through that. I'm glad that it's over. They don't say that. It says they left the council's presence. Look with me now, verse 41, rejoicing. They were happy. They considered it a blessing. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of Christ's name. Having hoped in God, having become comfortable playing from behind, virtue number one, hoping in God regardless of the score on the scoreboard, virtue number two, having come to a place where they did not fear men, They've now landed in a place where even those things which are done to them, they consider to be their report card home to their heavenly father in terms of how well they're doing representing him. You know, the Apostle Paul makes a statement at the tail end of Galatians. He says, don't don't let anybody give me any trouble anymore because I bear in my body the marks of Christ. And of course, you know, the churches in Galatia, they're struggling with heresy and they're struggling with whether or not they should even listen to this apostle. And his statement to them is, 
you know that when I preach the gospel, I suffer for it. I go, I tell people about Jesus, invariably there are stonings, invariably there is drownings, there are beatings, there's imprisonments, there are cold, sleepless nights, there are things that I endure in order to lift up the name of Christ. You are wrong to question my commitment to Jesus. He says, let no one trouble me anymore because I actually bear in my body the very marks of Jesus. We see it here with these guys. They rejoiced. Now, I don't like sickness or pain any more than you. None of us here are individuals seeking after hurt. None of us take pleasure in pain. But a virtue which we must start to embrace if we are to follow Christ faithfully is a virtue of suffering And at the end of stewardship, the end of anything we've been given, whether it's our bodies, whether it's our finances, whether it's our possessions or our personal belongings, the end of those things is for the sake of making the name of Jesus famous. It's always about proclaiming the name of Christ. Which brings us to virtue number four. Perseverance. Verse 42. Look at how the passage concludes. Every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ C.S. Lewis once said nobody really understands how bad they are until they've tried to be really really good That's true. We all fall into a normal rhythm of life, and that rhythm largely goes unexamined. We engage in habits that we don't even give a second thought to. How much do you treasure the name of Jesus? I'm sure all of us would say we love him. But when you've been beaten for the sake of the name of Christ, in our context here in Canada, when you've been mocked and made fun of and shamed, for the sake of his name. When you go home and you look yourself in the mirror and you ask the question, can I go forward tomorrow and say it again? That's when you understand the true depth of your love for this man who died for you. Everybody is a fair weather fan. But Jesus doesn't lead us into fair weather. You see, if we're going to say we love this king, we're going to have to remember the prophecy that he gave to Daniel that he reiterated in Matthew 24. Dark dark days lie ahead. And it is his intention for his people to shine like the stars on a sea of blackness. If we would be wise, First Baptist Church, we need to cultivate those four virtues in our life day after day after day. Hope in God. Be comfortable playing from behind. Number two, fear man 
Not at all. Dread God. Number three, the destination or the end of stewardship is sacrifice. And number four, we keep doing these things until the Lord comes for us. Let's pray. Father, we just say thank you for your word. We say thank you, God, so much for the privilege that it is to serve you. Father, help us to find joy in making your name famous. Lord, help us once again to give all that we have for Jesus. It's all for Jesus. All that we have. Help us, Lord, to give all that we are because you gave all that you are for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.